All right, in our series on the Minor Prophets, just a reminder, it's our goal to go through a thorough review of the prophetic message of each book. We're not necessarily attempting a verse-by-verse exposition. It's more than an overview, but less than a detailed exposition. It's somewhere in between. We had an introductory message over the first three chapters of Hosea, describing his marriage and family, the unfaithfulness of his wife, along with the prophet's call to seek restoration despite her unfaithfulness. And we saw how that was a not-at-all-veiled commentary on the relationship between God and his unfaithful people. Then in chapter 4, last week, the message turned to God's indictment of the nation, the leadership and the people are equally guilty for turning away from him. So this morning we're going to jump forward to Hosea chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. This brief section of text reveals the heart of God. And just a quick reminder as we read it, the people of God are broken up into two nations at this point. The northern ten tribes kept the name Israel, Although Hosea often refers to them as Ephraim, the largest of those ten tribes. And then Judah in the south was the more faithful nation, although it was following shortly behind its, its wicked sister in its descent into uh, evil. Hosea chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 says, O Ephraim... What shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew it goes away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Every time I read this text, it invariably reminds me of a story from my childhood. When we lived in Tennessee, my mom sometimes babysat for this little neighborhood girl, and this kid, she was a treat. Uh, There was apparently nothing that made her happier than to go about the house plucking the leaves and petals off of all of the flowers and houseplants that my mom had. The first time this happened, you could pass it off as some little kid not knowing any better, but my mom, with patience, and I might add with far more patience than she would have shown me in similar circumstances, With patience, she explained to this little monster that picking the leaves off of the plants was was killing them. It was murdering them. The next time she was at our house, she disappeared for a moment. And when we found her, she was again deliberately plucking the leaves off of a house plant one by one. But this time, things were just a little bit different. She paused between every treacherous tug and said, I'm sorry, Judy. I'm sorry, Judy. I'm sorry, Judy. 
She was convinced at that point in time that she could do what she wanted and just saying, I'm sorry, made everything okay. But in reality, neither her appalling actions nor her unceasing apologies could prove acceptable to my mother. Israel had very much the same problem here. God had commanded compassion and they were not compassionate. God insisted on faithfulness and they were unfaithful. God expected them to acknowledge him in all things and yet throughout Hosea there is the clear message that they were willfully ignorant. There was no knowledge of God in the land. And as they suffered the righteous wrath of God on their sins, they would occasionally turn to external sacrifices convinced that a momentary act of contrition would correct any shortcomings they had. When in reality, neither the appalling actions or their unceasing apologies proved acceptable to God. Hosea 6 verse 6 is one of those central themes of the minor prophets. What is it that God wants? He tells us in verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Yet this should make us say, wait a minute. Aren't the sacrifices described here exactly the things that God demanded from his people Israel? Isn't it part of the law, the the sacrifices, the burnt offerings, aren't those the means by which God said an Israelite might show himself to be righteous? They're part of the law of Moses. They were commands of God saying you should do these things. And yet now here is God saying what you're doing is not what I want. So let's make our first point by asking this question. Would God really reject such worship? Obviously, the answer is yes. Yes, some man in in Israel, up in the north, could, could leave his own nation, come down to Judah, to Jerusalem. He could bring a lamb to the temple, observe the commandments of God according to the the festival calendar in the law, or in other words, he could come to the right place at the right time with the right sacrifice and still find himself rejected by God. Hosea 6.6 is not a statement saying that God rejects all sacrifices and burnt offerings, But it clearly states that those ritual observances are meaningless without two things. He wants mercy, he says. He wants knowledge of God. The word mercy, again, is that Hebrew word hesed, which means steadfast love, or it carries the idea of loyalty. Do you think that God is bound to accept the sacrifice of some man who is not living his everyday life in loyalty to him, not abiding in faithfulness, not living in steadfast love. Does God not have to accept the, 
the external worship of a man who, who doesn't love him in his heart. The word knowledge is, is in the word of God is usually as here it describes something more than the kind of knowledge where you accumulate facts in order to pass a test. To know God is to have a relationship with him. When the Lord Jesus speaks on the coming day when some will hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. He was not teaching that the Lord lacked knowledge of that individual, right? Ignorant of who that wicked person is. On the contrary, God has all the facts. And because God has all the facts, he has the authority to state unequivocally, I never knew you. I had no relationship with you. And so this is the meaning of Hosea 6.6. The external appearance of obedience, right? Sacrifices and burnt offerings are meaningless apart from a heart that is devoted to God. Without life lived in a relationship with Him, those things will not please Him. The external pretense of worship without a heart devoted to God, is nothing less than hypocrisy. God rejects such deceitful worship. He hates it. Consider how thoroughly God has declared that he hates it. He hates it in the minor prophets. In Amos, for example, Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 23, this is what God says. I hate i despise your feast days and do not savor your sacred assemblies though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings i will not accept them nor will i regard your fatted peace offerings take away from me the noise of your songs for i will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments god will not accept worship that is not sincere worship he hates it in the major prophets. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 says this. God asks, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. All of those things are those activities of worship which God commanded and yet external worship without internal devotion to God is hypocrisy. He hates it. In the historical books, we see something similar. There was a moment when King Saul was commanded to destroy the Amalekites completely and not take 
any plunder from the battle. And when the prophet Samuel came after the battle was over, he asked the king, did you obey God? Oh, yeah. Then why do I hear oxen in the distance? Why are there lambs bleeding in the background? King Saul said, oh, well, we obeyed God, but we kept some of the stuff. You know, just, just the animals so that we could make them a sacrifice to God. First Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. In the Psalms, David wrote of his own sin and said that this, my sin is not going to be fixed by some external sacrifices. Something has to change on the inside. In Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, he writes of God and says, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. In fact, just one more scripture reference to sort of belabor the point. Another one to show that this is a major theme in the minor prophets. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And some of y'all from King's Kids know Micah 6, verse 8. But listen to the context of this. The prophet asks, what, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression or the fruit of my body for the sin of my own soul? The answer is, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you except to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Worship of any kind, worship of tithes and offerings and singing and sacrifices, all worship is meant to be an outward expression of an inward loving and loyal relationship with God. And it is not like the Lord is coming along in Hosea's day and changing the rules here or giving some kind of new information. From the very beginning, even within the law that describes and commands all of those burnt offerings and sacrifices and kinds of worship, God was clear. He insisted on a loving relationship from the very core of your being. In Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, the law had already been given. In fact, the, the word Deuteronomy means second law, not like he's giving a second kind of law, but it is a reiteration, it is a, a retelling, a second giving of the law that God had given to say, this is, this is what it means. Moses lays out all of those commands for worship, but he also says this in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
And outside of that, external religiosity without genuine love for God is an act of the worst hypocrisy, and God will have none of it. And so why then is this coming up in Hosea again? Why does God say this now? This is where we need to back up to chapter 4 and 5 for just a moment. Last week in Hosea 4, we saw God's indictment of the nation in many ways that continues through chapter 5. Many of the sins of the nation are described. In chapter 5, we're not, we're not going to read the chapter, but you can just look in verse 2. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, or I like how the NIV puts it, the rebels are knee-deep in slaughter. Right? There's physical violence in verse Three, there is spiritual adultery, there is prostitution as they go out and worship other gods, other idols. In verse 5, there is pride and arrogance. In verse 7, they, it, they're condemned for raising pagan children. Now think of this, God gave two commands in the law in relation to this. To the parents, it was to teach your children to honor God and to the children it was to honor your father and your mother. And if they accomplished those two things, Israel would not be in the situation where it was facing destruction. And there is a lot for us to learn from that today. Failing families sowed the seed of the nation's destruction. Traditional, or maybe I should say biblical, family structure matters. In verse 10, there is a description that they are stealing the land that is really the Lord's land. It is his to give to whom he will. Now, I wanted to point this out because when you look at verse 10, Hosea chapter 5, verse 10, the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. When you hear these Old Testament references to removing a landmark or a command, do not remove the ancient landmarks. This is not making a reference to modern day Christians saying, don't turn away from those ancient, tra- ancient traditions that you have been taught within your you know, denomination. The people were literally moving landmarks. Imagine it this way. Imagine you, you wake up tomorrow and the fence separating your property and your neighbor's property is adjusted over to your house by about 15 feet. Your neighbors would have moved the landmark. They would be stealing land in the process. And that's what was happening in Israel. The promised land was not theirs to take. God had given it to whom he would. They're also committing the sin of trusting human wisdom instead of God. Hosea chapter 5 verse 11 says that Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. The explanation of that is found in verse 13 when they saw God's judgment instead of genuine repentance it says then Ephraim went after Assyria and sent to King Jerob or Assyria's great king but yet he cannot help you heal your wound so in response to their sin 
God says his judgment is going to come upon them, and he uses two fascinating metaphors in the end of chapter 5. God says that he's going to be to them like a moth and like a lion. Look at Hosea 5, verse 12. Therefore I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. I like how James Montgomery Boyce describes this. He says that the imagery of a moth could suggest something relatively light at first because moths are both distracting and destructive. You know, having a a moth flitter by your face is distracting. And so perhaps the imagery is that God is going to act in providence to distract them from their sin. But more likely here, it is a picture of being destructive, just not personally destructive. You know, moths don't really hurt you. But if you've ever opened a mouth-eaten closet full of clothes, you'll know that they can hurt your stuff. So this is the first metaphor. God says he's going to be like a moth that brings rot to Ephraim and Judah's stuff. They're going to see their life and their possessions falling apart like moth-eaten clothes. And when that happens, maybe, just maybe, they should turn to God for restoration. But the reality is they won't do it. And so this is where the second metaphor comes in. Look at chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them And go away, I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Y'all, given a choice, you are better off taking the message from the moth than you are from the lion. Because the moth will destroy your stuff. The lion destroys you. The terrifying part of this imagery, though, is not just the destruction that the lion brings, but the abandonment that is proclaimed afterward, right? I will tear them, he says, and go my way. I will return to my place until they acknowledge their offense. I'm going to tear them and I'm going to abandon them. So seeing this imagery, Hosea chapter 6 opens in a very reasonable way in verses 1 through 3. Seemingly a way that we would hope for it to. Hosea chapter 6 verse 1, Come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. And we read this and we think, well, great, because this is repentance, right? Let's return to the Lord, because yeah, he has torn us like a lion, but he's the one who who can give us healing. He's stricken us, but he can treat us. Verses two and three, that message even continues, calling for revival, life from God, pursuing real knowledge, a real relationship with him. And so what's the problem? Because God said he would be like a moth and like a lion. He would get their attention. He would bring them to repentance. And now it seems like we're reading about repentance. 
but I wouldn't be so sure. There's a couple of ways to understand Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And it revolves around asking, whose voice is this? Who is talking? Because clearly in those three verses, it is an aside. It's somebody else's voice. Because before this, it is God speaking. Starting in verse 4, it's God speaking again. But in verses 1 through 3, someone else is talking and saying, Come, let us return to the Lord. If it is the voice of the prophet Hosea calling the nation to repent and ask God for mercy, it is evidence that it is only his voice and no one heeded the message. If it is the voice of the nation, the voice of the people, which it could be just based on the language, then it's evident that they are saying, let us return to the Lord, but they don't really mean it. We know this is either Hosea and he is ignored, Or it's the people, and they're not serious, by the Lord's reaction. Look at verse 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like an early dew, it goes away. If you all have ever been to the Smoky Mountains, and you've seen the way that the clouds and the mist gathers on the mountainside in the morning, it lasts right up until the time that the sun peeks over the mountain and hits it, and then it disappears. The idea here is like a morning cloud or like dew on the grass. When the warmth of the sun, the light from the sun, hits the supposed faithfulness of the people, it vanishes. There's nothing to it. It's temporary. And so the the repentance here, the best that it is, is, oh, don't eat up my stuff like a moth. Don't destroy me like a lion. I'm ready to repent. Here's a sacrifice. Enjoy this burnt offering. Be placated so that I can go back to my sin. This is nothing more than a little girl's, I'm sorry, Judy. Just give me something that gets me out of the consequences so that I can do what I want again. God's conclusion in verse 7 is that they have not only transgressed, transgressed the covenant, he says they have dealt treacherously with me. This is unfaithfulness at its worst because it is pretend faithfulness. In fact, this is part of why God sent the prophets. While there are, in the words of the prophets, comfort and assurances of reconciliation, have you ever noticed when you read the Old Testament prophets, like what prophet did God ever send to his people with the urgent message of, hey, listen, you're great just the way you are. Instead, the prophets are like an axe getting swung at a tree. In verse 5, I have hewn them by the words of the prophets. The prophet Hosea is sent to speak words that are God's words, and they are the words of life, but if unheeded, they are also the words of death, right? He even says in verse 5, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. In fact, if the faithfulness of Ephraim and Judah are like the morning mist, 
The end of verse 5 describes God's message through Hosea like it is the light that is going forth. The prophet Hosea serves as the very light that is sent to burn off the pretense of hypocritical worship. Because sacrifice without steadfast love is meaningless. Burnt offerings without a relationship with the Lord is worthless. The external pretense of worship without a heart devoted to God is nothing less than hypocrisy. And so what should we learn from this? Frankly, I don't know that this message needs to get recrafted and repackaged for the 21st century. The external pretense of worship without a heart devoted to God is nothing less than hypocrisy. Though God commanded the sacrifices and the burnt offerings, those were ways to outwardly display the inward reality of your steadfast love and loyalty and relationship with the Lord, it was not a way for you to earn those things. Likewise, we have our prescribed ways of New Testament worship. Your church attendance alone does not make you righteous before God. Singing hymns with a beautiful voice, does not please God when your heart is ugly. Tithes and offerings do not warrant God's respect if it's done begrudgingly out of a sense of meaningless duty. Every display of external religiosity is repugnant to our Heavenly Father who knows whether or not your heart is devoted in steadfast love to Him. And yet, There is also a gospel application to this text. God has come in the flesh to redeem those who fall short of his standards. Those sinners who know that they're sinners are keenly aware of their failures can turn to Jesus with a heart of steadfast love. They can have a genuine relationship with a father who will restore them to righteousness and set them on a path of obedience so that their worship is acceptable to him they'll worship in spirit and in truth jesus comes and puts this principle on display in matthew chapter 9 when he goes and he condescends in such humility to go to a publican to a tax collector and call him to be a disciple and then later that night he even comes to that man's house and eats a meal with other known sinners god the son who will reject religious hypocrites sits down at a meal with publicans and enforcers and cheats and thieves and extortioners and drunks and prostitutes all the morally bankrupt outcasts of society not in order to confirm them in their sin or in order to comfort them in their sin but in order to call them out of it and when the pharisees standing outside literally looking in the windows They are the epitome of hypocritical obedience. 
The Pharisees, looking in the window, dared to ask, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus hears it and assigns them homework. And I want you to listen to what his homework is. Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13 says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But you go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, right? The homework is Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And my prayer is this morning that we do our homework, that we learn that the external pretense of worship without a heart devoted to God is nothing less than hypocrisy, And that those who seek to worship God authentically, with sincerity, can do it knowing that they are sinners who have come to the Son, to God the Son, who burns off every pretense and leaves us with a heart of love, steadfast love and loyalty because Mercy and knowledge of God is what God says he insists upon if worship is going to be acceptable. We can worship him through faith in his son. And only then can we worship in a way that will please him.